Hey, my name is Brian Golden. I'm the lead pastor of Centerpoint Church. And I just want to personally thank you for listening to our podcast. And I also want to invite you wherever you are around the country or in the Tampa Bay area to join our digital online campus at centerpointfl.org. And here's what you need to know. Our vision is to create an alternative to church as usual for all people. And all that means is, regardless of whether you've been a longtime follower of Jesus, you're new to faith, you're investigating faith, or you don't even know what you believe, our goal is for you to feel like you belong, even if you never believe. And so thank you again for listening, and I hope today's message encourages you and helps you. What's up, church? How we doing at the 9 a.m. today? How you guys online? So my name is Brian. I'm the lead pastor here. So glad you guys are with us. Whether it's your first time, you're trying to figure it out. Somebody invited you to this series because you've got questions about the Bible. I love that you're here. I love that you're watching. Um, maybe you're a longtime follower of Jesus. Either way, we want to connect with you. I want to reiterate the announcement a second, a second ago. Next week, next steps. It's the best way to get connected here. You got to go from a row um, into a circle. You got to get involved in the life of the church. Otherwise, it's just a lame hobby. So next week, 5 p.m., next steps. I hope to see you there. All right. You guys ready for part two of Unbelievable. So I said this last week. I want to catch you up if you weren't here. This, unlike any other series, builds on each message. So if you did not listen to it, you're going to miss part of it. If you miss any message in the series, some of it's not going to make sense. And I'm going to leave you hanging at the end of every message. That's my warning. Go back, listen to it, watch it on YouTube, get it on the app, the website, any podcast catcher. But here's what we said last week. This is basically a series for adults who are introduced to the Bible as children. It's also a series for adults who are introduced to the Bible by adults who are introduced to the Bible as children. And so here, here's the whole premise of the series is a lot of us know Bible stories. I mean, even if you didn't grow up in the church and it's confusing and a lot of it's weird, but you know some of it. We know Bible stories, but we don't know the story of the Bible. And honestly, the story of how we got the Bible, which is really what this series is about, is almost as important as what is in the Bible. Because the backstory gives incredible insight, incredible context to the story. And if you don't really know the story, it's easy to discount all the stories in it. And so here's what we said last week is kind of the problem, though, and where some of the confusion is. Because most people who follow Jesus for 30 years, like, I just believe it. They don't really know how he got it or why it's reliable. They're just like, I should have faith. And then others, that didn't really work for you because somebody pointed out what else is in the Bible and you couldn't look away, so you were tempted to turn away and walk away. Maybe you've already done that. So this series is for both of those groups. But here's where the confusion comes in. How you got your Bible is not how we got the Bible. I said this last week, but this is my first Bible. I was five years old in vacation Bible school, and they gave me a Bible, and it was saran-wrapped, and it was already obviously chaptered and versed. And, you know, it had maps in the back and eventually they put my name on the inside of it. And I got this library of documents bound up and ready to go. And that's how you got your Bible or you downloaded it on your phone and all of it's there. But that is not how we got the Bible. It was not chaptered and versed and documented and bound. And in fact, as we looked at last week for hundreds of years, People sat down to write the story and the message and the words of Jesus, and they had no context for uh, the Bible. They had no thought that this would ever exist. They had no thought that they were writing something that would be bound in this library. They were just compelled to document what had happened, an extraordinary event that changed everything. Now, here's what you also have to know. Jesus didn't write the Bible. Maybe a shock to some of you, but Jesus is the reason that we have a Bible. 
So here's what we said last week. The Bible and the story of the Bible actually began the moment that they realized that Jesus could not be who Jesus said he was. Because on Easter weekend, Jesus died, which is not a big spoiler alert for most of you. And every secular historian now pretty much agrees. Jesus lived, Jesus died. What they cannot figure out is how the Jesus movement survived the first century. Because unlike any other religion, Jesus made himself the message and the movement. That's different than anything else. You can study it for yourself. Usually when a prophet dies or somebody's trying to get a new religion going dies, there are teachings to take forward so the movement can flourish. That was not the story of Jesus. Because Jesus said things like, I'm the resurrection and the life. I'm not telling you to believe a teaching about resurrection and life. I'm telling you I am resurrection and life. Jesus would say things like, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, which is a really bold statement. Either something extraordinary is going to happen or you're a lunatic. Jesus didn't give us any in-between options. And then the way, the truth, and the life died. Because he wasn't asking us to believe in a way. He was saying, I am the way. And when the resurrection in the life and the way the truth in the life dies, the movement and the message dies with him unlike any other movement. So on Easter weekend, there were no followers of Jesus. Nobody believed any longer. There was no message to take forward. Everybody was heartbroken, disillusioned, distraught, afraid because it was all over. And the only thing that changed that is the fact that several days later, they had breakfast with Jesus on the beach. And 500 people at one point saw him alive. And in the very city where they could have easily discounted this, it was never discounted. Jesus was walking around in the city of Jerusalem. He was seen by countless people. And then these cowards and people who were denying and running and were afraid for their life, rolled into the streets of Jerusalem. Peter, like Peter and John, those who were scared for their life, and they began to preach in the very city among the very people who had Jesus crucified to say, you guys killed the author of life, and God raised him from the dead, and we've seen him repent. And this is not about what we believe. This is about what we saw, a resurrected Savior. And everything changed. That extraordinary event is the only explanation for how the Jesus movement survived the first century. And then guys like Peter and John and others sat down to write the extraordinary events of what happened. And they were not thinking the gospel of John. John's thinking, I have got to document this and preserve it for future generations because God has done something in our midst. Luke, as he's is interviewing the eyewitnesses and putting together an orderly and exhaustive account. He's not thinking the gospel of Luke. He's thinking, I've got to write this document and I've got to let people know what has happened in our midst. God has done something and it's changed everything. So guys like Matthew and Mark and Luke and John began to explain and record and document these unbelievable events. And what you have to understand is from the very beginning, their documents were seen as reliable. Their documents were ultimately seen as valuable. And from the very beginning, almost, they were seen as sacred and they were seen as inspired. And eventually those documents would be included in the scripture. But still, as we left it last week and as I left you hanging, there was no the Bible at the end of the first century. 
Paul and some of those other initial followers eventually took the message of Jesus and the events of Jesus' life and they began to leave Judea and they began to take this message to the Gentiles. Now here's where I wanna start to catch you up on where I wanna go this week. Here was the major tension for Gentiles to basically convert or begin to follow the message of Jesus. The massive obstacle for Gentile people was this whole concept and this whole idea of one God. I cannot elevate the emotion of this enough, but that was unheard of in the ancient world. Nobody had any context for that in the ancient world. There was a pantheon of God in the, gods in the ancient world. And so as the Gentiles began to hear about this message from Jewish people, it was hard for them to wrap their minds around, you're talking about one God? You're talking about singular God? Because in the ancient world, you didn't convert from one religion to the other. You just added gods to the list. Like I've got six, I kind of like some of that. I'm gonna add that God. I like what you got going on. I'm gonna add, you might help my crops grow. So I think I should add you to the collection. But they did not convert religions. They just added gods to their collections. That's how everybody in the ancient world did it. That was the only context that they ever had. And then these Jews came along to go, no, no, something different is here. In fact, I said this last week in the first and second century. It's why most Roman people and then others on the outside would look at these Jewish and Gentile Christians and go, you guys must be atheists because you don't have a temple. You don't have a priest. You don't have any sacrifices. And you're not talking about the gods. You're talking about one God. You're talking about you added one God to the collection who claimed to be the only one. And I'm just telling you, that idea of one singular God in a pantheon of gods, that was novel and that was new. And so as the Gentiles began to hear about this, they would become enamored with particular Jews who were preaching this message and talking about the fact, hey, God has done something. God has done something through the person of Jesus. God has fulfilled the ancient law and the prophets. And so as the Gentiles became enamored with these particular Jews, they would also become enamored with the ancient Jewish sacred text, specifically of the law and the prophets. All of those law and prophets for hundreds of years that the Jewish people clung to that said, hey, one day God's gonna do something. One day God's gonna send a Messiah. One day God's gonna do something for the entire world. And so the Gentiles would begin to get to know these ancient Jewish texts. And what they realized was the, the Jewish concept and idea which predated any of the Greek and any of the Roman religions. Their idea from the very beginning was about one singular God whose name was Yahweh. In fact, the Jewish people had clung to that idea in a world where it was not known. They had clung to that idea for thousands of years. And it was novel, it was new, and it was unheard of. In fact, it's no way for you to fully get the emotion, but in the first line of the first section, or for the first book of the Bible that Moses wrote. Moses wrote the Torah, which is the first five books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And the first line of the first book of the Torah would cause the ancient world to rethink everything. And you probably know about it. In fact, what I'm gonna talk about may be actually a big obstacle to your faith. But Genesis 1-1 goes like this, that in the beginning... God. And everybody in the ancient world that's reading this is going, how could that be? Like there's a pantheon of gods. 
There's the Roman gods. There's the Greek gods. There's the gods that grow your crops. Like, how could there be one singular God? That idea was unimaginable. And in fact, Genesis is just the Greek for origin. That this, this is how it started, and this is what God did from the very beginning. Now, just go with me for a second. I told you last week, it's gonna be different than any other series I've done, so you've gotta track with me because I'm kind of telling you a story for four weeks. But in the 19th and 20th century, most of the archaeological studies seem to undermine the Genesis creation origin account. Because over and over again, they would actually find um, basically these really, really old origin creation texts from the Babylonians and from the Canaanites and from the Egyptians. And all of their creation stories, creation narratives, creation myths, they all seem to be the same. In fact, they seem to mirror the Genesis creation account really, really well. That was their initial assumption. So everybody with those archaeological discoveries in the 19th and 20th centuries from the Canaanites, Babylonians, the Egyptians, they just assumed that the Egyptians had ripped off those ancient texts to form the account that we know of in Genesis. Now, here's what you have to know. And again, you can look, for, look at this for yourself. Every secular thinker, pretty much, has abandoned that idea. What they realized, whether you believe it or not, is that Genesis, not only was it not a ripoff of those ancient origin creation texts from the Egyptians or Babylonians, that Genesis stood in stark contrast to any of those other ancient texts. In fact, what they discovered is that Genesis was a worldview unto itself. In fact, it was, and I'll make this case in a minute, it was an extraordinary, ahead of its time, worldview. And the modern scientific community, just hang with me, did not begin to even catch up with this for thousands of years. In fact, the Genesis account, nobody began to catch up with it until a Belgian priest came along in 1927 and introduced the idea or this concept for the first time or this theory known as the Big Bang Theory. Now just go with me for a second. But this is the first time after thousands of years since Genesis 1-1 was written, this is the first time where somebody came up with the idea that the universe had a beginning. See, up into this time, it's really important for you to know. And if you struggled with this, lean in. Up until this time, they had all held to what they had held to since the days of Aristotle in the fourth century, that the, the universe had always existed. The universe had always been here, that the universe did not have any kind of beginning. And then with the discovery of the cosmic microwave background radiation in 1964, every secular scientist or scientist in general abandoned that idea. And scientists believe almost unanimously that in a trillionth of a second, the universe expanded with extraordinary speed to astronomical scope. Or in the words of Genesis 1-1, in the beginning. It was thousands of years, just listen for a second because your freshman English teacher probably didn't tell you this. For thousands of years, scientists would not catch up with the fact that the universe had a beginning. Now, here's the thing that's kind of crazy, is anything that has a beginning has a cause, right? 
Now, not everything has a beginning, so not everything has a cause, but any, everything that has a beginning has a cause. This is another message in another series, and I'm gonna give you a book at the end for some of you who are wrestling with faith and science and Christianity and Genesis, because I have such a heart for where you're at, and I understand it. And for some of you, you are walking away from the Jesus movement unnecessarily. It is not at odds with science. But I just wanna say this. This is, this is the only thing that anybody is debating at this point. It's not, was there a beginning? The debate is, was that cause, because there has to be a cause if there was a beginning, was that cause purposeful? Was that cause personal? And was that cause intentional? That's the thing that's debated. And Genesis, Genesis had this for thousands of years before anybody else. In fact, here's the thing that we don't get when we come to Genesis 1-1 is we assume that we understand Moses' point when Moses writes Genesis 1-1, and most of us have no idea of Moses' point when we read Genesis 1-1 because, this is what I put in my notes, Moses is building a case that's no longer needed because his argument ultimately succeeded. The reason that many of you, you do not understand Genesis 1-1 is because you do not know why Moses was writing it and you don't know why Moses was writing it because what Moses wrote changed the thinking ultimately in the world and so you missed the point entirely. See, here's the thing. Moses, Moses is not giving an explanation of how God created the heavens and the earth. Moses is making the case that God created the heavens and the earth, not the gods. And that means nothing to you. That was extraordinary new information to them. This is not about the pantheon of gods. I'm telling you that there is one God, one singular God in your pantheon of gods who created the heavens and created the earth, not the gods. And the jaw of the ancient world dropped when they read Moses's accounts. See, in the beginning, God created God created, not the Egyptians, Amon-Re, not Babylon's Marduk. And some of you, maybe very few remember that story, but if you went over it in, in grad school or in undergrad, like the story of, of the Babylonians' creation um, myth is extraordinary. Like Marduk rides into this epic conflict of the gods on his steeds. One was called Merciless, one was called Slaughterer. And he rolls in and he shoots an arrow into the mouth of the goddess Tamate. I probably pronounced that wrong, but I'm close. Um, And he shoots the arrow into the mouth. And literally, this is the Egyptian creation myth, is that it splits the goddess's body in two and the upper half of her body became the heavens and the lower half of her body became the earth. Like you gotta think if you are in, I said Egyptian, but if you were in Babylonian Sunday school, those stories had to have been legit. Like you're coming back every single week. (laughs) And Moses is making this stark contrast that we totally miss in our culture, but he's going, no, no, it wasn't the Egypt's Amon-Re, it wasn't Babylon's Marduk. In the beginning, the God created the heavens and the earth, and I'm just telling you, it's hard for me to communicate the emotion. There was no parallel for this. 
There was nothing in ancient mythology even around this. There was no other religion that held to this. Nobody in ancient culture, any of the creation origin context had anything like this. It was unlike the Babylonians. It was unlike the Canaanites. It was unlike the Egyptians who all of their creation myths, basically the gods were created out of body parts and bodily fluids after cosmic conflicts and war between the gods. This This was something entirely different. It was a worldview unto itself. And then that brings us to the next epic ahead of its time notion, because I just referenced the Babylonian creation myth, which was actually known as Enuma Alish, which means went on high. And the Babylonian creation myth basically said this, this is my very um, short summary, but basically it said that the human race was created to be slaves to the lazy gods. That's why they were created. In fact, Marduk, who became the chief among all gods, supposedly said this, and this is mainly what they believed in the ancient world. Marduk said, I will establish a savage. Man shall be his name. Savage man I will create, and he shall be charged with the service of the gods that they might be at ease. The human race is here to be slaves to the lazy pantheon of gods which explains a lot because in ancient creation myths, the human race was an afterthought. Simply to try to appease, to somehow lessen the wrath of, to get in the good graces of the gods, but the human race was simply an afterthought. And consequently, this explains so much about ancient culture. Individuals had no rights and they had no hope and they had no intrinsic value, and they had no dignity, and they would take toddlers down to the dunghill to discard of them if it didn't fit into their family line. And women were not given any status, and there was unbelievable racial tension, and the violence and the injustices of the gods actually justified the violence and the injustice of the human rulers because they were just doing as their fathers in heaven were doing. And then in stark contrast to that, unparalleled, had never seen anything like it. Genesis comes along and Moses's account and what he writes in this concept that he introduces, I'm telling you, it would be thousands of years before anybody would catch up to this. And in fact, the human race is still trying to catch up with what Moses pens in Genesis 1 when he says this in Genesis 1.26. In our likeness, or actually Genesis 1.26, then God said, let us make mankind in our image. Do you understand how extraordinary that is in light of ancient culture? Because it was the Jewish text that said that mankind is the pinnacle of God's creation. That mankind had extraordinary dignity from the very beginning, thousands of years before the rest of the world would even begin to catch on and it was unheard of. 
And then the next part was equally unimaginable in verse 26, end of verse 26, when he says this, and in our likeness, so that they may rule over, pause, not, not worship, not deify, but rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all of the wild animals. And again, let me just help you out. You read that and think no big deal. This was shocking because in that ancient world, you made gods out of the birds. You made gods out of the livestock. Man was an afterthought. Man was there to just serve and be a slave to the gods. And this is the moment where Moses is saying, no, 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 everything has changed. Now you are the pinnacle of God's creation. You have extraordinary dignity. And now you are stewards and you are caretakers of this unbelievable creation. But you are not to worship the created thing. You're to worship me. You are stewards of the created thing. You're not to worship. You're not to deify now. There is one God and he is created you in his image and you are stewards of his creation and you are the pinnacle of everything he brought into existence and you have extraordinary dignity. You don't need to worship the birds anymore. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And I've said this before, I just wanna say it again, and I mean this. I, I, think, I think women should follow Jesus if for no other reason, because Jesus elevated the status of women unlike anybody else in the ancient world. And it took thousands of years for anybody to catch up, and in some ways we're still trying to catch up. But I'm just telling you, you can look at it for yourself. Jesus changed the game. And in this moment, Unlike anything that they had ever known, he's going, no, you were created male, female in the image of God and only recently has civilization begun to caught up, though we're not there, of the extraordinary dignity of every man and every woman. Moses, thousands of years before this, was saying, no, God said this from the very beginning. And we get distracted by the timing and the sequencing of Genesis one, and we completely miss the point. And honestly, we, we miss the power of Moses's words, but I'm telling you, Moses is dropping a bomb in this moment. He is completely rearranging the thinking of the ancient world, and he is introducing a radically different, unparalleled, and untested worldview. It had never been seen. In fact, can I just tell you, if you don't follow Jesus, but you follow the golden rule, you follow the golden rule because of Jesus. You follow the golden rule because of what Moses wrote thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago. Because this is the basis for it. That everybody that you are eyeball to eyeball with is made in the image of God the Imago Dei, that men are valuable and women are equally valuable and it is not nation specific and it is not generation specific and it is not ethnically specific. This 
was unlike the ancient world had ever seen. And now thousands of years later, Jesus would come along to say, I want you to love other people the way that I love you. And if you do not love other people, you are at odds with God, no matter how much you sing to me and give me money, because this is all about the dignity of every single individual. And I just wanna say, as I say often, Jesus followers are called to a different standard. I cannot dislike you because I disagree with you. I cannot treat you less than, I cannot condescend to you, I cannot throw shots on Facebook at you. I cannot simply treat you as somebody who's less than because you have a different political affiliation or because you view a pandemic differently or because your style of worship is different. I have no right to treat you differently, to condescend to you, to talk about you, to deify you because I am a follower of Jesus. And from the very beginning, he said, I created the world and I made man in my own image. And if you treat anybody as less than a valuable, dignified, sacred image bearer. You are at odds with God because this is what it means to follow God. And it doesn't matter who it is. And it doesn't matter whether they believe in the same God or not. And in fact, this was so unbelievable to the ancient world because it was Jesus that came along when they actually had an ethic in the first century that everybody espoused that said, if you have an enemy, get him back. And Jesus came along to say, if you have an enemy, go love him. And if he's an enemy of me, that's fine. I came for enemies of me. I want you to love him even more ferociously. Because you have been made in the image of God. And according to the Anuma Elish, the Babylonian creation myth, you were just born as a slave to serve the gods. No redeemer, no afterlife. In fact, the idea of the new atheists today, which I've read so much from them and so many brilliant thinkers, but the, the whole idea of the new atheists is that you were born a slave to your DNA and you have no free will and there's no redemption and there's no afterlife. And come on, this whole idea of being made in the image of God, the whole idea of the golden rule, that is not reflected in nature that's not even reflected in human nature. And Moses comes along thousands of years before and says, in the beginning. You didn't know it, but it's always been this way. And we're introduced in Genesis 1-1 to a God, listen to me, who saves and redeems and rescues and listen to me, because I'm talking about somebody specifically with a specific story and objection, and you're about ready to walk away in this moment, and a God who will never give up on you. Listen to me, you are never too far gone. I don't care what you injected. I don't care what you drank. I don't care what you engaged in. I don't care your orientation. It doesn't matter how long you've run. You serve a God that shows up on the pages of Genesis to say this is why I came from the beginning. 
extraordinary value. And then he does the most ungodlike thing imaginable. And unlike anything that they could conceive in the ancient world, God through Jesus comes into planet earth and actually begins to go to work to reverse the consequences of man's willful choice that God decided to honor to reject him. And Genesis one, don't miss this, provides us with the meta-narrative, with the ultimate context for human experience, a monotheistic worldview that did not exist and a worldview that answers the important questions about life because you already know this whether you believe or not. The important questions about life are the why questions. And I believe the reason that you're asking them, if you don't know, is because God placed that in you. Why is there something rather than nothing? You were created to ask that question. And why are you here and why does it matter? And Genesis begins to unfold the story. You were created on purpose for a purpose. It was intentional. It was purposeful. It was not the result of a cosmic conflict between the gods. The universe did not create you. You are created as an image bearer of the God of the universe so that you could personally and relationally relate with other image bearers and you could relate with God and that you could look at every single individual and no matter where they stand or where they come from, you can see the marks of your father in heaven in them. That's why you were created. And then when the time was just right, to quote Paul in Galatians, when God had everything just the way he wanted it, he joined us. <laughs> he got involved. He began to go to work. But I'm getting way ahead of myself. Let's go back to the first century Gentiles and I'm gonna land the plane right here and leave you completely hanging. In the opening line of the Hebrew Bible, in Genesis, the Gentiles realized that the Jews had it right all along for thousands of years. And that only fueled their interest in the law and the prophets. And so they began to move quickly to adopt the Jewish sacred text as scripture. And the stage was set for the inclusion of the Hebrew Bible into the Christian Bible. But that inclusion was not without unbelievable difficulties that I'll tell you about next week. Do not miss next week. Would you stand with me? And I'm gonna have our social media team put up this resource that I didn't tell them about because I just thought about it last night. But you're gonna see this pop up in the next couple of days. But for some of you who are really struggling and wrestling, I wanna point you to one resource by a guy by the name of John Lennox, who was a mathematician from Oxford. And I don't know if you're a reader, but you can get the audio book. But he writes this book that I think might be incredibly helpful for you because there's so many questions that I don't have time to dive into. I wanna give you the meta-narrative of this. I want, you to, I want to give you the story of the Bible, 
But for some of you who are just struggling with attention, if you've walked away, in my view, and in some cases unnecessarily, I just wanna point you to this book called Seven Days That Divide the World, The Beginning According to Genesis and Science. So I'm gonna post that. If you don't follow me on social media, go follow me. I'll have it up there. We'll have it on our site. But I wanna help you with this resource. And then I wanna encourage you as we are digesting this contest, I cannot, I cannot emphasize this enough. You need community. You were created as an image bearer to relate with other image bearer around spiritual things in your journey with Jesus. Last week, I saw maybe more people place their faith and trust in Christ than I've ever seen since I've been preaching. I've seen a lot of people come to know Christ. I want you to take a next step. Next steps is next week, the 22nd. That's a great place to go to go. I just wanna figure out how do I get into a community group, which is really our vehicle to get people into relationships and life and begin to journey with others. And I'm just telling you, God will begin to place other people around you to help you in this journey. It is uncomfortable, it is inconvenient, but anything that is important is usually uncomfortable and inconvenient. Take the step. Be here next week at five o'clock. Get into a group as you see group information come out over the next four weeks. But I want you to take a next step. I am not content to preach at you in a row. I want to see your life transformed because Jesus has the power to transform your life. And it's only gonna happen in the context of other image bearers. So as we close, I wanna give you this opportunity because... I just decided every week of the series, I'm gonna do this. And there's so much that I've left unsaid. There's so much that you're still wondering online or if you're listening to us via radio. But for some of you, as I said last week, for whatever reason, this isn't my communication, isn't preaching. I believe it's the spirit of God. There's this moment where you would just go, I still have a lot of unanswered questions, but I believe that it's true. And the scripture says that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And it's so simple, it's easy to stumble around it. Because for a lot of us, we still have an ancient context in mind that many of us have not left behind, but Jesus came to introduce something brand new. The Babylonian way is done with. Canaanite way is done with. The Old Testament way is done with. Jesus is here. And he's come to offer salvation by grace through faith to say, I believe that Jesus came. I believe that he died for me. I believe that he rose again. And I have a ton of unanswered questions. But what is undeniable trumps what is unexplainable. I just believe, and there's so much historical evidence that Jesus rose from the dead in history. And I'm placing my faith and my trust in him. And I wanna give you that opportunity right now in the house and online. Would you just bow your head with me, close your eyes. I know that's, that's weird if you haven't been around the church thing, but just out of respect for people around you. And I wanna lead you in this prayer. And I say this every week, but a prayer does not save you. There's no magic words, there's no formula. I don't need to pass out a script, but I just wanna help you in formulating the words around your own faith and trust to pray this. And you can do it right now where you're at in your own heart and mind. Jesus, I believe that you're God. I believe that you died on the cross from my sin. And I believe three days later, you rose again. And right now, I'm asking you to forgive me and to save me. One more time for those who this is their moment. You pray this after me and it's your declaration of faith and trust that matters. Jesus, I believe that you're God. I believe that you died on the cross for all of my sin. I believe that you rose again from the grave. Right now, I'm trusting you to save me and to forgive me. The scripture says the moment you make that transfer of trust, 
because Jesus did all the heavy lifting. You can't earn it. You can't do anything to keep it. It's on the basis of what he did for you. When you make that declaration of trust, you become a son and daughter of God that even if you never get it right behaviorally, you weren't saved because of your behavior. You were saved because of Jesus. And you will get to the finish line of your life in all of your mess. And if you've made that declaration of trust, you will stand face to face with your savior, Jesus, who will welcome you with open arms. It's grace. So right now, if that was you with nobody looking around, I just wanna acknowledge you. I'm not gonna do anything weird, but I wanna acknowledge this moment that will transform your eternity to say, I've placed my faith and my trust in Jesus. Would you just lift up your hand? Because this is the moment for me when I would say, I believe. Yeah. Anybody else? Just put it up real quick so I can see it. I'm not gonna call you to do anything other than text a number to go. This is the moment where I place my faith and my trust in Jesus. I'm gonna encourage you to find somebody at a connect desk. As you go out, you'll see them or there's a tent outside. We'd love to talk with you about this journey. We'd love to help you take next steps. You can also text Centerpoint to 94,000 if you're online right now, Centerpoint to 94,000. Jesus, I thank you for what, again, you're doing in this place. Thank you for saving, redeeming, rescuing people. And I thank you for this one idea today. You will never, you will never give up on us. And from the very beginning, you declared us your image bears the pinnacle of your creation, worthy of saving and worthy of rescuing. And I thank you today that you are doing that again. And I pray this in your incredible name, the name of Jesus. I need a little more from you guys. I need you to get used to celebrating and clapping. But right now, would you celebrate those who place their faith and trust? I think you can do a little bit better. Let's celebrate those who went from darkness to light, from death to life today. Would you give it up for them right now in this moment? Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this message or have been impacted by Centerpoint Church in any way, would you consider helping us out in one of two ways? First, if you would just spread the word, share this message with your friends, family. Maybe you could go rate and review our podcast on your favorite podcast catcher, but this helps us so much more than you know. And secondly, this ministry is supported by people like you through their financial generosity. And so if you've been impacted by any of these messages, would you consider giving to support the mission and vision of Centerpoint to see people reach with the radical grace of Jesus? You can give today on our website at centerpointfl.org. And again, that's centerpointfl.org.